0: Grace to you and peace. It is an honor and blessing to be here with you all today to worship our risen Lord Jesus together. And to delve into one of my favorite sections of scripture. These next two weeks, God willing, we're going to encounter Jesus the healer in the first two sets of healings in Matthew 8 and 9. We're going to see Matthew paint a masterful portrait of who Jesus is. Now, I think this question, who is Jesus, is central to Matthew's account of the good news of Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Because, once, because Matthew knows, once you know who Jesus is, you are going to want to follow him. You're going to want to be his disciple. It is in this way, then, that the theme of discipleship, so prominent through Matthew's gospel account, is addressed again and again. So, as we look together at Matthew 8 and a little bit of 9, allow that question, this question, to simmer in the back of your mind. Who is this one who Matthew carefully, deliberately, even masterfully paints a portrait of? Who is Jesus Now, as many of you know, Matthew can be divided into five sections, five parts, which many scholars believe deliberately parallels the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Old Testament. Each part consists of a block of teaching, Jesus' sermons, if you will, followed by a narrative, which both illustrates the preceding sermon and transitions us to Jesus' next sermon, so, having announced the kingdom of heaven at hand in chapter 4, and having delivered the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' sermon on living in the already present reality of the kingdom, that's found in Matthew 5-7, to Matthew presents us with ten healings, the first three of which we will look at today. So, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of the word. Matthew chapter 7 verse 28. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him, and a leper Came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go. Show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word. And my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority. With soldiers under me. And I say to this one go. And he goes and to another come. And he comes. And to my slave do this. And he does it. Now when Jesus heard this. He marveled. And said to those who were following. Truly I say to you. I have not found such great faith. With anyone In Israel, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she got up and waited on him. And when evening came, they brought many to him who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried our diseases. And from chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus was going through all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Living God, we believe that you inspired your servant Matthew to accurately remember and record the events of this text. Open our eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and our hearts to accept what you would reveal of yourself to us today. In the name of Jesus, the healer, amen. Please be seated. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming, that is, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Teaching, preaching, and healing. This is the same trio of words that first makes its appearance in chapter 4. Before the Sermon on the Mount, And it seems to be the reason that the crowds gather to Jesus in the first place. As my mentor put it so succinctly, uh, preaching, teaching, and healing are three inseparable elements of Jesus' ministry. In fact, preaching and teaching are healing. You see, as Jesus, the living word, speaks, deep healing takes place in spirit and soul. And this same Jesus, the living word, not only heals physical ailments with but a word, as we'll soon see. But in doing so, he also heals societal and religious divides. And so, still in stunned amazement at his authoritative teaching and preaching of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds trail Jesus as he heads back to the town of Capernaum short 20 minute walk away. Now as he's walking, Matthew tells us a leper comes to Jesus and he bows down. He literally prostrates himself before Jesus. Wait wait a second. What what happened? A leper? A leper does what? But there's a crowd there. Now, I'm pretty sure I didn't just hear a gasp of astonishment from anyone here today while I read the passage or when I just paraphrased it. But let me assure you, in the first century, not only would this have caused a gasp of astonishment, there likely would have been terrified shouts and screams and panic pushing and shoving of others in the crowd as those nearest to this leper fought to get clear of this unclean man. You see, though the word leprosy was used to describe a variety of skin diseases, what remained in common was that no person, no person would have anything to do with a leper. Of the 61 defilements that were found in ancient Jewish tradition, leprosy was second only to contact with a dead body. Lepers were required to stay at least six feet away from any person and when the wind was blowing 150 feet away. According to Leviticus 13, with torn clothing and and a bare head, signs of those mourning for the dead, lepers were to call out, unclean, unclean. And because of its incurable nature, leprosy was often regarded as divine punishment, the most graphic illustration of sin's effect in a human. And so, the leper was the outcast of outcasts, the living dead, the one furthest removed from society, the one most distant from community, the one most separated, excommunicated, if you will, from the religious center of Jewish life in the first century. They were unable to even set foot within the city walls of Jerusalem, let alone the temple there. And now, this leper, born perhaps a, a, a bold, with a boldness, born perhaps of desperation, uh, he comes to Jesus, and in a gesture of complete dependence and submission, he lays himself out on the ground before Jesus. And he humbly states, that's right, he doesn't even ask. No demand, no reason. You notice, he doesn't even say he wants it. Just. Lord, if you are willing. (sighs) What a contrast to how I often approach the Lord. I think you know what I mean. Shaking my puny fist at God. Demanding to know why he hasn't done this or given that yet. What a lesson to learn from this leper. Lord, if you are willing You can make me clean. Clean, healed, freed from the stigma, the loneliness of this affliction. To be able to go home to family and friends, to be part of society and the worshiping community. And then Jesus does the unthinkable. In contrast to the healings of Miriam and Naaman in the Old Testament, two notable healings of leprosy which were done at a distance. Jesus, stretching out his hand, touched him. Literally grabbed him. Can you imagine what that would have been like for this man? Shunned and untouched since he contracted leprosy? Theologian Dale Bruner is right on when he says, The gospel is in that grasp. For in that grasp, Jesus breaks through the social stigma and the religious segregation, attaching himself to that man, <laughs> a man still unclean, risking the same stigma, the same sickness, at least in the minds of the crowds. And he grabs a hold of this unclean man, never to let go again. You see, this is completely upside down to our own thinking and our own feelings, How often we believe that Jesus would only want to associate with us after we are clean. No, no, no. Jesus grabs a hold of the leper before he has cleansed him, just like he does for us today. Attached to him then, Jesus speaks, I am willing. I want to be cleansed. Notice he doesn't pray. He doesn't appeal to God. He just speaks. He speaks with the same authority the crowds were amazed by earlier. And immediately, the man's leprosy was cleansed. But this story, it doesn't end here because Jesus speaks again. Tell no one. Now, I think this is Jesus' way of saying, don't get sidetracked after all. All the crowds around him had just seen what had taken place, right? Don't get sidetracked. But in fulfillment of the law, for Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And for love's sake, in order to restore this man back to society, go show yourself to the priests. So starting from the outside In The one most cut off from family, friends, society, and worshiping community, Jesus heals, bringing the outcast into relationship with himself and showing that no one, no one is beyond the reach of his kingdom. Now, continuing along the way, Jesus enters Capernaum. Now, I can imagine just as he's passing through the gates, there's this stir. There's another commotion. As yet another runs towards the crowd looking for Jesus. But this is no ordinary man. No. He's a centurion. A ranking officer from that hated Roman occupation. An occupation Israel was expecting the Messiah to cast aside. A professional Roman soldier. Commander of 84 men. Looking for Jesus. Uh Uh-oh. Trouble. And to top it all off, Let us not forget this centurion, the walking embodiment of Israel's oppression and political strife. Well, he was also a Gentile. In terms of Jewish societal and religious distance, Gentiles, most you and I, in fact, were second only to those who were sick, like the leper. They were barred from the inner life of Israel, and though they would have been permitted inside the walls of the holy city of Jerusalem, when it came to the temple, believing Gentiles were relegated to the exterior areas, outside of the central temple itself, distance from the worshiping community. In other words, total religious isolation between Jew and Gentile, even for those who believed in the God of Israel. Now, I must point out that it wasn't always like this. While we tend to think of racial purity as one of the tenets of Israel in the Old Testament, the fact is Gentiles were simply non-Israelites, not hated, not despised for that reason alone. Quite the contrary, in fact. Kindness, hospitality, fair and equal treatment was commanded throughout Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Leviticus. But by the first century, Jesus' time, things were different. After centuries of oppression under Gentile captors, right? The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. Gentiles were viewed with fear and suspicion, treated with disdain and hatred. Jewish leaders enacted strict regulations governing Jew and Gentile interactions, counter to the spirit of God's laws in the Old Testament. Regulations like those, oh, against entering a Gentile home. Or, heaven forbid, eating with the Gentile. Even eating food that had been left where a Gentile might possibly contaminate it by touching it. All these were forbidden to the Jew. And though we point and laugh at the ridiculousness of the ancients, distancing ourselves from their backward behavior, I think this is not as foreign to us as we would believe. Don't we still set out walls and barriers, some proposing quite literally, between ourselves and any that we may fear may affect our way of life. Don't we still create walls and barriers to keep out those we judge unfit for Jesus' kingdom? Those that don't quite fit our own mold? And truth The only kingdom unfit for them is one of our own fabrication, of our own imagination. See, not so Jesus' kingdom. He welcomes all, including the Gentile Roman centurion, as we'll see. So this centurion, he comes to Jesus, imploring him, begging him, saying, Lord. You see? You see? He's got it. With remarkable humility from a man representative of a superior conquering force, he calls Jesus, what? Lord. And he calls Jesus Lord at great personal risk. For as many of you well know, here was a man who had to swear allegiance to Caesar. Who had to declare that Caesar is Lord? Kaiser Curios. If word ever got out, this wouldn't just be career ending. <laughs> it was very well likely it was life ending. And so he says, Lord, my servant is thrown down at home, paralyzed, in terrible pain. What sort of man is this? First, he calls Jesus Lord in humility and a great risk to himself. And now it appears that he even cares about his servant, his slave. In a place and time where slaves were little more than inanimate tools? Listen to how one Roman writer put it, uh, Vero. The only difference between a slave and a beast in a cart is that a slave talks. Of course, some people cut out the tongues of their slave too to prevent the talking. But that's not all. This Gentile Roman centurion apparently cares so much about his servant that he doesn't even use the usual term for servant. Some of your Bibles, and I hope you have them here today, will have a little number beside the word servant in verses 6 and 8. If you find the corresponding entry to that little number at the bottom or maybe in the central column of your Bible, You'll see that there's a little note there that says lit, or L-I-T, which lit, which means literally, followed by boy. See, the word used by the centurion is boy. Uh, for the Greek students among you, pious, not the usual term for slave, which is doulos. I think this one word highlights the character of the centurion. I think he's using it as a term of endearment for a beloved personal servant, one whom he treats like his own son, humble, gentle, kind, compassionate. Sounds like he's living as a citizen of the kingdom already, doesn't it? The kingdom Jesus just preached in the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus, ever full of grace and compassion, replies to him, I myself am coming to heal him, paraphrase Come on, let's go already. And in Jesus' answer to the centurion, we see for a second time a definitive response to the question. Is Jesus willing? Is he? You bet he is. Jesus is so willing, in fact, that he is going to go to the house of a Gentile, breaking through yet another societal divide, for a Gentile's house would have been a place that Jewish religious leaders would have considered unclean. But even before he moves another inch, something incredible happens. The centurion speaks, and what he says points to a faith so remarkable that Jesus himself marvels. That's right. Jesus is stunned by the centurion's faith. A faith so great that Jesus responds by saying he has not found faith like it with anyone in Israel. In fact, the only other time that is recorded that Jesus marvels is at the lack of faith of the people of Israel, of Nazareth, his hometown, people who should have known him the best. Lord, the centurion says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my boy will be healed. The centurion knows the people he is among. He knows the scruples of the people of the jews and in his humility he states his unworthiness at having jesus make himself ceremonially unclean even to enact healing but that's not all somehow somehow this centurion has absolute confidence that jesus the living word only need to speak a word and his boy will be healed Let me underscore how incredible, how amazing that is, the nature of this centurion's faith. Can you think of any precedent in the Old Testament in which someone was healed from a distance instantaneously with but a word from a man? There is none, none at all. For even if this centurion was a proselyte, a believer and follower, of the God of Israel, one who studied Torah, and really, I I think he is. There is no way he could have known from a careful study of the Old Testament, carried out, uh, of the healings carried out by God's prophets and servants, that this was even within the realm of possibility. And so the reason the centurion gives is not grounded in what he has studied or observed in historical precedents. Rather, he reasons that if a man such as himself must be obeyed, that is, a man under authority, whom has been given the right to exercise authority over those under his command, how much more so must Jesus' word be obeyed, the one who comes in the name of the Father, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given Space and time are no barrier for the Creator. All authority is focused and manifest in Him. Health and sickness, life and death, they cannot do otherwise but obey Jesus. By faith, the centurion knows this, and by faith he sees what no one else in Israel has eyes to see, that he was standing in the very presence of God Himself, incarnate, in the person of Jesus. And so, Jesus marvels. And in doing so, reveals to us a glimpse of his glorious kingdom, a kingdom unlike anything the Jewish religious establishment would have imagined. For they believe Gentiles, if they had any part in the kingdom, would have been mere servants to those feasting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Instead, and certainly unexpected to the religious leaders of the day, Jesus tells us his kingdom is upside down. Or rather, the kingdom that they were imagining was upside down. The ones whom they thought would have little or no part in the kingdom of heaven, like the Gentiles, of whom this Roman centurion is the first fruit, they instead would be full-fledged participants in Jesus' kingdom, in contrast to the weeping and gnashing and mourning of the centurion that was about to be turned into joy and celebration because of his newfound relationship with Jesus, the self-appointed, self-made kingdom, self-appointed sons of a self-made kingdom would be cast into the outer darkness where there would be no relationship with Jesus, no relationship to the source of comfort and healing, and where, as a result, there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth mixed in with this glorious glimpse then is a stern warning a stern warning you will notice is not primarily directed to those who are outside the kingdom but to those who think themselves believers in fact all of jesus's warnings about hell occur in messages to those who believe themselves to be sons and daughters of the kingdom. Listen to how Dale Bruner puts it. Hell is not so much a doctrine to frighten unbelievers as it is a doctrine to warn those who think themselves believers. Hmm. On the heels of that warning, in the presence of what I suspect are a number of very offended Jews... Jesus honors the faith of the centurion declaring, Done, just as you have believed. And Matthew reports that the servant boy was healed that very moment. So with the servant boy healed, Jesus and company continues to Peter's home. I'm guessing Peter had invited Jesus and his disciples over for the Sabbath meal. And there Jesus sees Peter's mother-in-law. Now, to interpret this as forcefully as a Greek. Knocked off her feet by a fever. I'm sure some of you can relate. Once again, Jesus does the unexpected. Of his own free will, he goes to her and heals her. In his sovereign freedom, he heals. And this is the third time we've seen his definitive response to the question is jesus willing yes yes he is in fact he is so willing that there is no statement no request not a word jesus just reaching out just to touch but oh what a touch for in that touch Jesus reaches through and tears down yet another societal divide. You see, women were second-class citizens, barely a step above Gentiles and lepers. They had no rights. They were treated as mere possessions. And though they would have been allowed further into the temple in Jerusalem, they were nevertheless separated from the holy place, the area in the temple reserved exclusively for men. In fact, as part of their daily morning prayers, Jewish men would thank God for not having made them a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Furthermore, Jewish laws at this time would have strictly forbidden the touching of a woman's hand, a ban that was comparable, as scholars know, to touching anything unclean. But Jesus reaching through these societal and religious barriers he touches peter's mother-in-law's hand and instantly she is healed and her response is equally beautiful because it flows from grace received she gets up and she serves him not in exchange for being healed as if jesus might expect payment but serves because service is the fruit of healing. I sometimes wonder how much of our busyness, of my own busyness, serving Jesus is a subtle way of trying to pay him back. See, true service is born of being touched by grace. Jesus' grace, which penetrates so deeply that it causes Christ-centered service to flow From our innermost being. Service born of grace. His service that is filled with the fruit of the spirit. It is full of love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness and goodness. It is faithful. Gentle. And self-controlled. You know there is still one more barrier that Jesus brings tumbling down. See. Jesus freely allows Peter's mother-in-law. To serve him. To wait on him something that was forbidden by the rabbis of that day, lest women become accustomed to being around men. Now, as our time today comes to an end, I know you may have some uh, unanswered questions, but I I want to leave you with three points drawn from what I think are Matthew's own reflections upon Jesus' healings. First... Remember the question right at the very beginning? Who is Jesus? Matthew finds the answer to this in Isaiah 53. In the last of the four so-called servant songs, Jesus is the fulfillment of a promise spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He is none other than the suffering servant of the Lord, the key figure in the servant songs who suffers horribly on behalf of sinful humanity. He is the one who took our infirmities and carried our diseases. Verse 1 of Isaiah 53 asks the same question, but from a different angle, two sides of the same coin, if you will. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To this, Matthew replies, the ones whom Jesus healed, the outcast, the outsider, and the ostracized, the ones whose sicknesses he bore and whose pains he carried, the ones whom he crosses every social and religious divide, pouring out his compassion and grace to bring them into the kingdom and into relationship with himself. This is the outrageous love and compassion, grace and mercy of Jesus of Nazareth. Now perhaps this is the first time you've heard, or maybe this is the hundredth, time you've heard about this man jesus the healer but perhaps you've always felt like the outcast outsider or even ostracized i've got good news for you actually jesus has good news for you his kingdom the kingdom of heaven is for you and he is welcoming you even now with open arms For those of us who are sons and daughters of the kingdom already, there is a stern warning for us here in this passage. It is not for us to decide who belongs in Jesus' kingdom and who does not. This is Jesus' kingdom, not ours. In fact, it is those whom we are sinfully inclined to believe don't belong that actually belong the most. Second, second is the question. Is he willing? To this, Matthew gives the resounding answer, yes. But is he still willing today, in this day and age? If Jesus is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow then the Jesus the healer we read about in Matthew is still Jesus the healer here in Lynn Valley, in in British Columbia, in Canada, North America, and the world. But I hear you ask, what about me? Why am I not healed? That is a very difficult, difficult matter to wrestle with. Um, But if you allow me, Let me give you a few thoughts here. Are we willing to be healed? Now, this seems like a strange question, I know. And you know what? It might even sound like I'm assigning blame for sickness to the ones who are sick. Please hear me. That's not my intent. I ask this because as I've spoken to pastors and medical professionals over the years, and in my own encounter with pain and sickness, whether it may be my own or that of others, I have found that sometimes it becomes part of our identity. Even defining who we are so that it becomes harder and harder to let go of. For letting go of would mean a change in circumstance, which often results in a change in responsibility. And our ability to be passive and complain And so, do we bring our pains and sufferings to Jesus only to complain or to allow him to deal with them as he pleases? Next thought, the purpose, the aim of healing is discipleship. I'll say that again. The purpose, the aim of healing is discipleship. This is the only way for us to be ultimately healed. This we'll see even more clearly in next week's set of three healings. You see, this side of eternity with Jesus in his kingdom, physical healing of any sort is only temporary. It is appointed men and women once to die. But mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace, even death is healed. As Jesus takes his disciples, those in relationship with and in him through death and into life. Death, therefore, is only penultimate. For Jesus, the healer, has the last word, and that word is life. This is how one of the great confessions of Christianity puts it. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul both in life and in death to my faithful savior jesus christ he has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and he has set me free from all the power of the devil he also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly father not a hair can fall from my head indeed all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by the Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. And so for this reason, followers of Jesus, Jesus' disciples can profess that suffering is redemptive. It is redemptive. We may not always know why or how, but in God's economy, suffering is redemptive. And perhaps to encourage us today, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 12 about Paul, a faithful disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, who asked God three times for some condition, which evidently caused him great pain to be removed. And God's response was, My grace is sufficient for you. And Paul then realizes that this thorn in the flesh, this pain was for his own good to keep him from exalting himself. So first, who is Jesus? Second, is he willing? And third and last, is he really with us? Yes. Jesus is always with us, especially in our suffering. We never, never suffer alone. Matthew tells us he takes and carries our sicknesses and pains onto and into himself. Into himself. This means that Jesus, beyond all others, can relate with how we feel, even how we suffer. For he is the suffering servant, though he himself does not become ill. So, I invite you now, in these next few moments of silence, to come to Jesus, the healer. He welcomes you. He always welcomes you, just as you are, with all that you're carrying, worries, burdens, sicknesses, pains, Whatever it might be, would you bring them to Jesus, trusting that he does take and carry them? And would you even now wait on him, trusting him to do as he sees fit? Remember his promise to take and carry all who trust in him all the way into his glorious kingdom.
1: Amen. Stand for the closing song, please. say you're as ransom.
0: love to sit and pray with you if any of you uh, want to pray afterwards as you go from this place know that jesus has gone before you that he is with you and that he is in you and as you encounter others in your homes in your workplaces in shops and stores in the beauty of god's creation outdoors May those you meet encounter Jesus, the healer, alive in you, so that they too may receive healing, deep spirit and soul renewing discipleship healing. Amen. Go in peace.